The Grow Kinder podcast features conversations with thought leaders in education, business, tech, and the arts, who all share one thing in common, a dedication to growing kinder in their work and lives, and helping others do the same. Brought to you by Committee for Children. I used to always equate social-emotional learning with uh, national security. If we don't get this right... Today we talked with General Craig McKinley, a four-star general, former president of the Air Force Association, and a member of the Aspen Institute's National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development. Hi, General McKinley. It's Mia. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for asking and for Jennifer and the team here at Aspen uh, for coordinating. Yeah, I'm just, I'm terribly sorry that my co-host, Andrea Lovenhill, is really sick today. Okay. And has lost her voice and everything. So it's just going to be me today. Now, are you, where are you joining us from? Jennifer and the Aspen team are here in D.C. Oh, fantastic. And I am snowed in in Bend, Oregon. We had quite a snow event. And so we are just enjoying a little break from the world other than um, we fortunately have Internet access so that we can still talk to you. Well, that's perfect. We had a big snowstorm probably eight years ago here. They called it Snowmageddon. Yeah. And literally, I know what you're going through. They could not get anybody to work or out of their house or anywhere. Yep. Yep. I'm just, I'm really just trying to enjoy it. It's very, very beautiful. Awesome. It'll end soon, so enjoy it. <laughs> I know, exactly. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, General McKinley. We're really honored to have you. And, you know, I'd love to just kind of um, start by asking you a little bit about your beginnings. Um, you've had a long and impressive career, and I'm curious about what really drew you to your military work. Well, interesting you would ask. I'm of the generation that uh, was in a conscripted world back in uh, the late 60s, early 70s. I had a draft number, and nobody has that now, and it was number 58, and 58 guaranteed you a trip to Southeast Asia unless you went to college, and I always had a love for flying. I always wanted to be a pilot. And so my senior year in high school, I applied for and received a reserve officer training corps scholarship in the United States Air Force to any university I chose. And the only quid was I owed them six years afterwards, but they would put me through flight school. So I thought that was a pretty good deal. And I did. I went to Southern Methodist University in Dallas. I got my uh, license to fly airplanes, went to flight school 30 days after I graduated, and I thought I was going to head over and, and get in the end of that, that war. Uh, but uh, Henry Kissinger and Richard Nixon stopped it before I got to that theater. So, uh, But I've loved every minute of it. Turned out to be a 38-year career. Fantastic. And so, you know, in all those 38 years, you know, um, you must have moved around quite a bit. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about what military life is like? A lot of us don't have that much knowledge about what the experience is like for families and for kids growing up in the military? That's a great question. And, and ironically, as I was in the final stages of my career, the, the interesting parts of, of uh, the leadership uh, structure were talking about the fact that less than 1% of our population in the United States of America have had the opportunity to serve. Not because they wouldn't if they were asked. It's just uh, our military is very small now. It's very technically oriented, and we don't have conscription anymore. So uh, young men and women 
all can apply, but we, we're very selective with who we pick. But uh, in my particular case, uh, you had a two or three year assignment. You were moving around at the needs of the service. And I was an Air Force person, so most of our assignments were stateside during the Cold War. Uh, but I did get to Germany, and, and that was kind of a hot spot in the 80s and early 90s. Uh, but the Navy would send their people out to sea. They might be deployed for six months. Uh, the Marine Corps, you know, did their thing. But it, you did move around a lot, but you built great family relationships with the other people doing the same thing. So uh, my kids went to about six or seven different schools. I took my son out of high school twice, and so he had to change schools twice in high school. He will never let me forget that. But he actually did very well in the move. So it was just kind of a way of life. I think most military families uh, on active duty have between 15 and 25 moves in a 25 to 30-year career. So it is extensive, but it is a culture, and you it's a family. And uh, I don't think many people complain. In fact, after you retire, you kind of want to move every three years because you get used to it. Well, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because my partner grew up in the military, and we're a bit like that. We're a little unsettled and move move around. So yeah, yeah I've seen it. And he and he hadn't actually even thought about it until someone we also know who was in the Navy and whose family was in the Navy said, "Well, no wonder you don't stay anywhere more than three years. That's how you grew up." It is, and you become used to it, and. The person who takes care of the home, whether it's the man or the woman, enjoys getting a new house, decorating it, and meeting new friends and stuff. So it is kind of a way of life, but it's kind of a strange way of life compared to the people who aren't doing that. But it's a it's a wonderful career. I never thought I would stay longer than my initial commitment, which was six years, but I was enjoying it so much that it just went by very quickly. Yeah. And so would you say, like kind of tying in the that lifestyle to our topic of social and emotional learning. Do you think that kids that grow up in the military have to exercise certain kinds of social and emotional skills in a different way than other kids? Well, I think uh, the parents of children in the military teach resilience and they teach empathy because you kind of have to have that, especially on a post-Army post or a Navy base or Air Force base. It's a very structured environment, and you really can't get in too much trouble because your neighbors will turn their kids into each other. So it's kind of like the old, probably the 30s and 40s, where parents were watching each other's kids and very safe environment behind the walls of a military post or base. I don't think they're any stronger or any less strong than, than the average child. We traveled with the commission to three cities. We went to Cleveland, we went to Tacoma, Washington, we went to San Antonio, Texas, actually it was Austin, Texas, and we saw really some fantastic young men and women who most of their parents, we didn't ever ask, but most of those parents were not in the military, but I think that's where education and educators come in today. I think they teach these same skills that uh, many of the military families try to embed in their children, so... um, I don't think they're anything special. I just think they are watched a little more carefully mm-hmm. and have role models up and down the streets of the the bases they live on uh, that make sure they don't they don't stray too far away from the norm. Yeah, that sounds like. Um, in fact, you have this kind of extended family looking out for you, huh? Absolutely, especially 
these last 18 years where most of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, members of our Reserve and National Guard have been gone so much. Mm -hmm. So an awful lot of uh, philanthropies have started up to help these children while their parent, whether it's the mom or the dad, have been gone for up to a year. And some deployments now, some people have been on six or seven deployments. So it really has taken the military family network to make sure that nobody gets left behind. Yeah. Well, and you know, speaking of young people, General, when many people enter the military when they're 18, and as we know from uh, recent understandings of brain science that, you know, people are still developing until they're 24. And so 18 is quite a young age. And what do you think is necessary for someone who's 18 years old and entering the military um, in terms of social and emotional competence? Um, at that early age, rather than someone who comes in after college, that's what these initial basic trainings provide to these young men and women. They kind of gauge their social emotional skills and what they've learned and what they have to offer. And they develop leadership training. I mean, some of these young men and women at 18 are great leaders. And so they end up leading the groups uh, in these basic military training formations, and they bring everybody along. And you don't graduate individually, you graduate as a group. So group dynamics are very important. Empathy, kindness, uh, emotional skill sets are really uh, the coin of the realm. And you find about half the inductees are very set, and the other half need the help of the others and along with the people who are trained to be those early educators in our military system of discipline and uh, success is the team effort rather than the individual effort. By the time after 90 days, 120 days go by, everybody's at that same level. And it's remarkable to see the transformation. Wow. And is there a formal assessment of those kinds of skills or is it more that the people who are doing the training are, you know, so experienced and it's kind of more of a judgment call for them. Each service kind of has its own set of criteria that they would use to identify the the entry-level man or woman into those basic training formations. But from an Air Force perspective, it's done, all the training's done at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. It's a wonderful place because everybody goes through there. That's their common base. The instructors are all trained, and they have great leadership development for the instructors. But yes, the first three or four weeks are basically an evaluation of each person's social, emotional, and academic mm-hmm. criteria that they, they bring to the table. And then then the curriculum is designed for the next four to six weeks to you know round out everybody and get them to a point where... The discipline is very well understood, and it's not harassment. It's it's team building. Uh, the physical fitness piece is is all done where we try to encourage everybody to succeed. There are some people who don't make it, and that's that's a shame because you either self initiate your elimination, or or some kids just cannot make it through that program. But it's very few numbers. Mm-hmm. So I would say that most of our young people today who come into the military, their first six weeks are the evaluation period. And that's when they are get that rapid change of environment from a home life where you have a mother or father 
or a, a caregiver who's been very supportive of you too, you have to really kind of live on your own. But once that assessment's done, then they tailor the next few weeks to try and develop uh, any skills that are lacking and then try to get everybody on the same sheet of music as we send them out into the world to do their jobs. Sure. Yeah, it's an amazing system. Yeah, it sounds like it had been perfected, I'm sure, over many years. I, I hear all of the the different ways in which social-emotional intelligence and competence is really woven into the experience of being in the military. But how did you personally become interested in social emotional development so much so that you're you know part of a of the Aspen Institute commission I was recruited by a mentor of mine by the name of Hugh Price Hugh was a a, a leading expert in taking children who had maybe missed something along the way uh, maybe got fed up with school and he created a program in the late 70s early 80s called Youth Challenge uh, Hugh, Hugh was a mentor of mine as I was a little bit more senior in my grades, and and I got very involved with the Youth Challenge program where you took a kid who, young man or woman who's who dropped out of high school for a variety of reasons, and 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 you put him through a very rigorous program, seventeen months worth of program. A lot of it is is living together with your classmates and and you bring them around. And so we've had a great deal of success with these young men and women. It's a Department of Defense program sponsored through an appropriation through Congress to do this. And it's in uh, 37 states and territories, District of Columbia, Guam, Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico. So that's where I got kind of hooked on. Every child has a purpose. Uh, No child should be left behind or in the drastic term, thrown away. Mm. And so Hugh kind of got me there. And then as I finished up my career, we continued to develop that program. And uh, tonight, ironically, here in Washington, we have our annual uh, Youth Challenge reception where these young cadets uh, will come and speak. And they really, they, they're amazing young people who, for the first time in their lives, someone's cared about them and taught them emotional and social skills and, and given them a reason for living. But I think as we did use the commission's work, we found that if you do that in, in early education and you do it on a, on a large scale and educators buy into the fact that this is important, it helps them learn the, the core courses of English, math, science better when they have those other skills incorporated in their lives. So that's kind of how I got started in it. And most of my colleagues who I served with up and to include the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, have all had similar experiences with with young people and, and teaching leadership and developing the next generation of leaders. So nothing special about my life. It's just I had some really strong support mechanisms that kind of taught me what was very important to pass on to the next generation. That sounds amazing. If you had... Um to say with the the young people that you've worked with, and you think about the kind of skills, uh, social-emotional skills in particular, that they had to develop, let's say that they entered with a deficit. Is there even sort of one skill set that you can think of that is particularly relevant for work in the military that you think, you know, you just really, if you don't have this one thing, it's very difficult to be successful? Um, the one set of skills or a si- skill set that I think is very relevant is the ability to work together as a team because nobody 
succeeds in the military without being a team team player, either a leader or a follower. And your roles change depending on the situation. So I look at the special operations community that's been so active these last 18 years. Every person's got a mission tasking. Everybody's got to perform. You do it for your fellow soldier, sailor, airman, marine. Uh, men and women support each other magnificently. The, the metric is survival, uh, especially for the special operators. So teamwork is, is vitally important. And I think you learn that in, in, in the younger grades in school. So I think teamwork, compassion, motivation, those are all skill sets that I think social-emotional um, develops in young people, but you got to have them if you're going to succeed in the military. Mm-hmm. Definitely, especially as you said, because really the issue is survival. Right. I, I, I would add, if I could, because I can kind of pivot to some of the commission work. Yes. We, we had a business leader focus group which I had the opportunity to sit in with my co-chair. And the business community today, so it's not just a military focus, gave us some key takeaways. I think they're interesting. Uh, The business community valued a very broad range of social and emotional skills, including many that we had not heard about, which was interesting. But intellectual curiosity was one of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Willingness to give and receive feedback. Personal ownership of problems and challenges recognition of unconscious bias, uh, and that ties back to kind of what you're doing it, uh, on this podcast, the kindness piece, the closely aligned with the idea of kindness. Um, another business takeaway were they were trying to help us find common and accurate language on what social emotional development is really used for. How do, how do you promote that common understanding? We use a lot of words the educators do, the scientists do. But if you're in the business world, uh, they're not really quite sure what the academicians are talking about is the same thing. And so finally, the corporate leaders think globally about the assessment and development of social and emotional skills to include cultural sensitivity, the ability to work with diverse teams, the importance of maintaining diverse spaces for leadership training, and creating a universal standard to judge social and emotional skills pointing out that different cultures might perceive and judge skills differently. Now, I will tell you the military values all of those things very importantly, but I was I was pleasantly surprised, as I think the commissioners were, to hear the business leaders tell us this is what they're looking for. So what I'm hearing you saying is that you know, you you came to the commission in order to contribute to it, but there were things that you've learned there that surprised you. And do you think about ways that you're going to now take that back into the work, the other work that you do? Yes, absolutely. And and I'll just throw out a, a shout out to the commissioners. There were 25 leaders from different sectors who came together at the beginning of this thing, and we were all a very diverse group. Uh, but we had researchers, educators, parents, young people. We had groups of partners, including the Committee for Children, but I think all of us learned something from each other and our backgrounds, and I think all of us are taking back these deliverables to try to improve and encourage the use of social-emotional learning to achieve academic success. Excellent. And so, you know, I think that kind of goes back to what you were saying, too, about people from different sectors can just really find ways in which Social-emotional development is so crucial um, to success in their own field. Exactly. I will tell you that I was kind of a zealot from my background, and I know 
Jennifer sitting in here listening to me, but I used to always equate social emotional learning with uh, national security. Hmm. If we don't get this right, other nations are spending an awful lot of time and effort developing their young people. Um, if we don't do this right, we won't have the right kinds of young men and women joining the military. We won't have the right kind of education system that lets people compete in the 21st century. So I always pounded my fist and said it's about national security, where educators were saying this is about the way we teach, the way we deliver education, things we've known for several decades, implementing the six factors that the commission came up with, and I'll just briefly cover them. Sure. The six recommendations that came out on the report are, one, set a clear vision that broadens the definition of student success to prioritize the whole child. Two, transform learning settings so they are safe and supportive for all young people. Three, change instruction to teach students social, emotional, and cognitive skills and embed these skills in academics and in school-wide practices. Four, build adult expertise in child development. And we were very careful not to take the role of the parent out of this equation. That means the adults need to kind of learn this system too because they may not be able to give, give it to their children at home. Uh, five, align resources and leverage partners in the community to, to address the whole child because it's just not the eight hours a, a young person's in school. It's the before school experience. It's the recess experience. It's the after school experience. And then the last recommendation is to forge closer connections between research and practice by shifting the paradigm for how research gets done. You know, we've, di we've been down the social emotional path before. Dr. Jim Comer, who was one of our experts, uh, emeritus, said, we've been to at this for 45, 50 years, but we've never built the research and the practical application of SEL into education's vernacular so that we, we build a groundswell of support for the institutionalization of this uh, in all our schools. So those things came out loud and clear to me in the commission. So, so General, do you have of those of those six things? Do you have a personal opinion about where we have the greatest amount of work to do, where we're still furthest away from ideal? I'm not sure any one of those six uh, sticks out as either holy grail or we rank order them in any priority. We just felt all of those six recommendations were worthy of further study, research, incorporation. Uh, with educators to say, we know you've got a very busy workload now as a teacher. How do we build more of this into your structure, which would then fall into their education? But I think those six recommendations taken broadly uh, and, and developed in a community where they can put their own flavor and touch to them are the things that are most critical, that stood out for us the most important, uh, which comes out in this final report to a nation at hope mm. that if you've read the nation at risk, it's scary. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, none of us were really around when that report was built, but now the nation at hope gives you encouragement. Uh, Tim Shriver, who was kind of our guiding light through some of this, uh, he made an impassioned speech when we rolled out the report that we really need to study this and not let it just sit on a coffee table and draw dust. We've got to, we've got to keep pushing this. It won't happen on its own for sure. And I would encourage your listeners, if they can, to go online at 
all one word, nation at hope.org, because it's, it's, ca- it's categorized in that report. Uh, and after two years of work, I was really pleased with the, the people on the staff who captured these great ideas. And there are some videos that are embedded on that website that Edutopia worked with our commission staff to build, which tells about the great schools and amazing, amazing educators who we got to meet and work with on this commission report. And again, it's all one word, nationathope.org. And that's a beauty of this podcast, and I thank you for doing this, is we can promote this report easier uh, for people who are interested for them to go online and see that. Yeah, the Nation at Hope concept, it's very positive and aspirational, and I think it's its such a great direction, you know, and of course, with our podcast being called Grow Kinder, we, we have that same orientation. You know, kindness isn't always built into that conversation when we're, when we're talking about SEL. Sometimes it's very, um, you know, skill focused, but I'm just curious about your thoughts on kindness, about can it be taught and, and what role does it have in the military? I think it is a, a, a teachable a commodity. I do think the, the families, uh, the mothers and fathers, the, the connectivity in a home, uh, the significant adult leaders in a home today, be them men or women, can start the process with younger people. Uh, I think how how partners interact with each other kind of sets the tone for many young people to see what kindness is about. The military encourages it, uh, mean-spiritedness, uh, aggressiveness, compulsiveness. Those things are kind of discredited leadership traits for most of the young men and women who move up in the leadership circles in the military as they probably are in in the corporate world or the medical world or the education world. Uh, But what's really interesting is I don't know, in coming over here today, you know you get the snippets on your iPhone about, you know, an act of kindness that has recently occurred. And I, I was struggling with, you know, could I really put my fingers on it? How about this gentleman in Greenville, South Carolina, who was in a grocery store, came out, and two young Girl Scouts were selling cookies, and he bought $45 worth. And it was like 35 degrees, and these young girls were not dressed because Greenville, you're not used to this cold weather. Yeah. He went back after he put them in the car and paid $545 and said, I'm buying all your cookies because you girls need to get out of this cold weather. <laughs> I mean, if that's not a perfect example this week of – a person who just randomly said, these girls should not be out here doing this. They'd been out for two hours. Uh, he just fixed it. He just took care of it. I think that's a remarkable act of kindness that I, I saw this week that I think we should champion. Indeed, kindness and generosity. Yes, absolutely. And I'm thinking there's random acts of kindness going on in every one of our cities today. I'll bet where you are, people snowed in, elderly, ill, I bet people are doing some amazing things on snowmobiles and things to try to make sure people aren't in distress. That's absolutely true. And our Committee for Children offices are in Seattle. And Seattle had its own little snowpocalypse. We were talking about snowpocalypses earlier, you and I. And Seattle is a place that definitely doesn't expect snow pretty much ever. And um, at our work, we uh, use a, a communications tool called Slack. And we had a, we have a Slack channel called Grow Kinder. And people were posting 
the acts that they had seen um, of people pushing cars, you know, out of, it's a very hilly city, as you probably know, pushing cars out of the roads and, and helping people dig out. So indeed, uh, emergency-like situations, I think, bring out the best in people. Yeah. Uh, it's usually when we're confronted with a, with a challenge, a crisis, uh, some emotional event uh, where kindness, I think, is embedded in most people's psyche. I, I don't want to speak for other countries, but I know this country has really good people, and they really, it really shines through when you're challenged, like you are with weather, or this gentleman was looking at these two young ladies saying they shouldn't be out here selling cookies until all these boxes are gone. I'm just going to finish it off. So, You know, emergency situations, high-intensity situations can bring out the best in people. And I would just imagine, obviously, that people in the military are training for and experiencing those kinds of conditions all the time. Is there? Do you have any thoughts or examples about kindness and how it fits into that that paradigm. Sometimes it almost feels like, you know, because it's conflict situations, that it's almost like antithetical. But I'm sure you have a different opinion about that. Well, obviously, you go to the two big examples of the past 18 years in, in the post 9-11 world where we've been involved in Afghanistan and Iraq. And, you know, there are kinetic operators who go out and uh, make sure that the real evil people who want to kill us are not able to do that. But where we've really made inroads is in women's education in Afghanistan. We take military teachers over there. We build schoolhouses. These are young women who've never been allowed to go to school. That's kindness. And we take people out to do agricultural development teams. These are people from the Midwest who know how to grow crops, and we've taken them to Afghanistan to try to teach their farmers a different way of farming versus what they've been used to for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And in Iraq, we've tried to help, and sometimes you can make the argument we haven't, but we've tried to bring city management to their cities. We've tried to do things. There have been more people doing good acts of kindness in Afghanistan and Iraq than people out in the field fighting hand-to-hand combat, even though you have to have that part too. Right. So so you're right. It has to be a total effort by not only our military, but our State Department, by USAID, by, I mean, these are big jobs. And I know people are tired of it. I know know our country's war-weary. But I will say from my observation there's been an awful lot of good things done and maybe not covered as much as some of the other events. Mm-hmm. But I can assure you that our military does both very good things, tries to help, tries to make life easier for people as it does is try to keep bad people from hurting us. Yeah. So it, so that's very interesting, you know, and I was thinking about it just in terms of sort of internally amongst each other. Then you bring up this great point of people from our military actually helping folks in terms of education and agriculture and helping put their lives back together, really. Right, right, right. Because, you know, we're pretty good at breaking things. And that's what we train our, our uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines to do when it, when it comes time to fight. But we also are very good at putting things back together again. Yeah. And arguably, there's a lot of work left to be done. But um, I think that's that's the true nature of our American military. 
right? And I just feel like you don't get to hear about that enough. No, no, and we don't self-promote it very much. I was able to see it uh, firsthand because these agricultural development teams came out of National Guard units in Kansas and Indiana and Ohio and, you know, our breadbasket of the United States. They would send kids who have joined the National Guard or Reserve over who were, you know, they were farmers who wore the uniform. And I watched these young men and women teach these techniques to people who'd never seen how farming can be done more efficiently and effectively to grow more crops. I've seen our female soldiers working with uh, female Afghan uh, students and teachers to try to get the school system built for all, all children, not just men. Uh, so, so there are some very good news stories that have been done. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm curious, you know, kind of switching over to a little bit more about your own personal experience. Um, our listeners have heard a little bit more about your experience um, in our intro to this podcast. But I just wanted to bring up again that you were the president of the Air Force Association. And in that role, you served as an advisor to the president. And so I'm really curious as to, you know, in that role, how did you have to access your own social and emotional competence to to be successful in that in that position? Well, I'll, I'll give a shout out to the structure that has been built over years, but I was part of the Joint Chiefs of Staff where Admiral Mike Mullen was the chairman and then uh, General Marty Dempsey, and, and you have a chief of staff of each service, and they all come from their own backgrounds and specializations. But at that level, after 35 or 40 years of service, if we don't work together collegially at the table, uh, make sure that our soldiers are uh, trained, they're organized properly and equipped well, uh, then we fail uh, the young people who join our military. So I watched at that table, I was very fortunate to be asked to join that group. I watched everybody try their best to do the best they could with the resources that our taxpayers allocate through Congress to make sure we had the most effective and efficient military force uh, in the world. And, and, and I think dem demonstrably we, we do, but we are entering a new period of great power competition where other nations have studied the way we do our business, just like other nations' businesses have studied the way our American businesses operate. And there are challenges. There are great challenges over the next 20 to 50 years uh, so that the United States of America doesn't fall behind in, in any of the realms that we have tried so hard to develop and bring to the world. But uh, technology, artificial intelligence, automation, it's, it's going to be a very challenging world. And our young people are going to have to have to be ready for that when they, when they get out of school, either high school or college or graduate school. But there's others around the world who have taken a, taken a study of what we do, and they're getting pretty good at it too. So I would encourage all your listeners to say it's going to be a competitive race and great power competition, which we saw in the 20th century, mostly militarily, has turned into an economic challenge. I think education is a challenge. It's going to be a, a very competitive world that I hope all of our young people are ready to emerge into. You know, I'm curious about what you were talking about in terms of you and your colleagues from the different uh, military branches 
who had to come together to work collaboratively. Um, you know, sometimes we think about internationally, do you think there's an opportunity in the world for collaboration? Do you think that we could move toward that? Or do you see that, no, it's really, that's too, somehow too pie in the sky to imagine that, that we would be able to work collaboratively internationally? I guess I'm a very optimistic person, as were my colleagues in the military. Um, we, we plan for what you just described as a more collegial uh, world where we, we solve problems together. Um, but then on my side of the street, we were always prepared for the worst, where if it didn't work or if there were powers that wanted to go a different direction, that we were able to compete uh, across the full spectrum of human dynamics. So I think you're right. I think there's great opportunities. Uh, climate change is one, I think, that we'll realize as a, as a world that we'll have to work together on. Uh, I think the social, emotional, academic development piece, I, I think we can learn from other nations. I think they can learn from our commission report. Um, no, there are opportunities where we can collaborate and it doesn't have to be, you know, great powers can compete, but they can also agree to make things better for, for the world at large and certainly for the people who live in their, in their country. So I'm optimistic and the, and the men and women I worked with are, are very opti- optimistic also. And so do you think that um, the recommendations from the report, do you think they're applicable internationally? You've done quite a bit of international work. Um, certainly the European uh, countries, the Scandinavian countries would certainly participate in this. I think what I've seen in Indonesia and Asia, I think those countries would certainly partner with us. South America, Latin America also. I think there's great opportunities for this to be more of a world project now that we've developed ours. Uh, what I really would hate to see, and I think the other 24 commissioners would hate to see, is us just stop yeah. and say we declare success on this. Just like your organization, you cannot have what you promote, which is a kinder world. You can't just assume it's going to be that way. You have to work hard at it, and I think that's what we'd like to see too. That's right. And and we always say that um, that social-emotional learning is a lifelong pursuit. It's not like I'm trying to learn how to do long division, and once I've got it, I've got it, right? No. Yeah, you're right. You know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, when I know when I speak to groups of adults, um, sometimes I'll ask the question, like, who here feels like they've perfected their social-emotional competence? And of course, no one. No one feels like They've kind of got it all all buttoned up. So it really is, um, maybe to your point of, you know, you don't just stop. You just you just keep at it. Right. And the young people on our commission who were very thoughtful people who, de- who deal with technology challenged us more senior members of the commission to say technology can be our friend here too, mm-hmm. that we can develop programs that younger people can be exposed to through technology that maybe assist educators in what we're really trying to accomplish here. So I think it's a, it's a whole of government, a whole of industry, a whole of education s- solution set that will have to evolve over time, but we should use all the tools at our disposal uh, and the great philanthropies that are, you represent to work together collaboratively to try to leverage all this for the good of the order. You know, it is, it's so great that, that the work, I'm sure, of so many of the participants um, in the commission will continue, of course. 
it's it's very important, and I applaud your organization for what you do. I I hope that as our commission sunset this past January, this January of 2019, there are people who are going to continue on. We would love to partner with you and the people who listen to this podcast to make sure uh, we incorporate the best practices that you have found with what we've done, uh, because it really is it's a journey that never ends, but we can we can we can make the world better, this country for sure better, uh, to use your tools and techniques along with what our commissioners found in their report. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, we just have a few more minutes remaining, and I'm I'm wondering if there's anything else you would like to tell our listeners before we sign off. First of all, thank you for the Grow Kinder podcast for inviting. Aspen to participate for me personally to be part of this. It's great to get to know you. Um, again, I would encourage your listeners if they're interested, and I think maybe we pique some interest to go to nationathope.org and, and see more. And I believe uh, there will be some work that carries on beyond the commission uh, that if people are interested in supporting or volunteering to assist, that the nation at hope.org will give people the opportunity to contribute. So once again, thank you for your time and, and for the, your listeners time for uh, their interest in what we found over two years to be very incredible and powerful work. General McKinley, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. That was general Craig McKinley from the Aspen Institute's national commission on social, emotional and academic development. Visit aspeninstitute.org to learn more about the commission and its new report, From a Nation at Risk to a Nation at Hope. Hear more of the Grow Kinder podcast at growkinderpodcast.org or subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Let's grow kinder together. Together.